Chapter Four of *The House of a Thousand Candles* by Meredith Nicholson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A voice from the lake. I ran to the window and peered out into the night. The wood through which we had approached the house seemed to encompass it. The branches of a great tree brushed the panes. I was tugging at the fastening of the window when I became aware of Bates at my elbow. Did something happen, sir? His unbroken calm angered me. Someone had fired at me through a window, and I had narrowly escaped being shot. I resented the unconcern with which this servant accepted the situation. "'Nothing worth mentioning. Somebody tried to assassinate me, that's all,' I said in a voice that failed to be calmly ironical. I was still fumbling at the catch of the window. "'Allow me, sir.' and he threw up the sash with an ease that increased my irritation. I leaned out and tried to find some clue to my assailant. Bates opened another window and surveyed the dark landscape with me. "'It was a shot from without, was it, sir?' "'Of course it was. You didn't suppose I shot it myself, did you?' He examined the broken pane and picked up the bullet from the table. "'It's a rifle ball, I should say.' The bullet was half-flattened by its contact with the wall. It was a cartridge ball of large caliber, and might have been fired from either rifle or pistol. "'It's very unusual, sir.' I wheeled upon him angrily and found him fumbling with the bit of metal, a troubled look in his face. He at once continued, as though anxious to allay my fears, "'Quite accidental, most likely. Probably boys on the lake are shooting at ducks.' I laughed out so suddenly that Bates started back in alarm. "'You idiot!' I roared, seizing him by the collar with both hands and shaking him fiercely. "'You fool! Do the people around here shoot ducks at night? Do they shoot waterfowl with elephant guns and fire at people through windows just for fun?' I threw him back against the table so that it leaped away from him, and he fell prone on the floor. "'Get up!' I commanded. "'And fetch a lantern!' He said nothing, but did as I bade him. We traversed the long cheerless hall to the front door, and I sent him before me into the woodland. My notions of the geography of the region were the vaguest, but I wished to examine for myself the premises that evidently contained a dangerous prowler. I was very angry, and my rage increased as I followed Bates, who had suddenly retired within himself. We stood soon beneath the lights of the refectory window. The ground was covered with leaves which broke crisply under our feet. "'What lies beyond here?' I demanded. "'About a quarter of a mile of woods, sir, and then the lake.' "'Go ahead,' I ordered. "'Straight to the lake.' I was soon stumbling through rough underbrush, similar to that through which we had approached the house. Bates swung along confidently enough ahead of me, pausing occasionally to hold back the branches. I began to feel, as my rage abated, that I had set out on a foolish undertaking. I was utterly at sea as to the character of the grounds— I was following a man whom I had not seen until two hours before, and whom I began to suspect of all manner of designs upon me. It was wholly unlikely that the person who had fired into the windows would lurk about, and, moreover, the light of the lantern, the crack of the leaves, and the breaking of the boughs advertised our approach loudly. I am, however, a person given to steadfastness in error, if nothing else, and I plunged along behind my guide with a grim determination to reach the margin of the lake if for no other reason than to exercise my authority over the custodian of this strange estate. A bush slapped me sharply, and I stopped to rub the sting from my face. 
"'Are you hurt, sir?' asked Bates solicitously, turning with the lantern. "'Of course not!' I snapped. "'I'm having the time of my life. Are there no paths in this jungle?' "'Not through here, sir. It was Mr. Glenarm's idea not to disturb the wood at all. He was very fond of walking through the timber.' "'Not at night, I hope. Where are we now?' "'Quite near the lake, sir.' "'Then go on.' I was out of patience with Bates, with the painless woodland, and, I must confess, with the spirit of John Marshall Glenarm, my grandfather. We came out presently upon a gravelly beach, and Bates stamped suddenly on planking. "'This is the Glenarm dock, sir, and that's the boathouse.' He waved his lantern toward a low structure that rose dark beside us. As we stood silent, peering out into the starlight, I heard distinctly the dip of a paddle and the soft gliding motion of a canoe. "'It's a boat, sir,' whispered Bates, hiding the lantern under his coat. I brushed past him and crept to the end of the dock. The paddle dipped on silently and evenly in the still water, but the sound grew fainter. A canoe is the most graceful and most sensitive, the most inexplicable contrivance of man. With its paddle you may dip up stars along quiet shores, or steal into the very harbour of dreams. I knew that furtive splash instantly, and knew that a trained hand wielded the paddle. My boyhood summers in the Maine woods were not, I frequently find, wholly wasted. The owner of the canoe had evidently stolen close to the Glenarm dock, and had made off when alarmed by the noise of our approach through the wood. "'Have you a boat here?' "'The boathouse is locked, and I haven't the key with me, sir,' he replied without excitement. "'Of course you haven't,' I snapped, full of anger at his tone of irreproachable respect and at my own helplessness. I had not even seen the place by daylight, and the woodland behind me and the lake at my feet were things of shadow and mystery. In my rage I stamped my foot. "'Lead the way back,' I roared. I had turned toward the woodland when, suddenly, there stole across the water a voice, a woman's voice, deep, musical, and deliberate. "'Really, I shouldn't be so angry if I were you,' it said with a lingering note on the word angry. "'Who are you? What are you doing there?' I bawled. "'Just enjoying a little tranquil thought,' was the drawling, mocking reply. Far out upon the water I heard the dip and glide of the canoe, and saw faintly its outline for a moment. Then it was gone. The lake, the surrounding wood, were an unknown world, the canoe, a boat of dreams. Then again came the voice. "'Good night, merry gentlemen.' "'It was a lady, sir,' remarked Bates, after we had waited silently for a full minute. "'How clever you are!' I sneered. "'I suppose ladies prowl about here at night, shooting ducks or into people's houses?' "'It would seem quite likely, sir.' I should have liked to cast him into the lake, but he was already moving away, the lantern swinging at his side. I followed him back through the woodland to the house. My spirits quickly responded to the cheering influence of the great library. I stirred the fire on the hearth into life and sat down before it, tired from my tramp. I was mystified and perplexed by the incident that had already marked my coming. It was possible, to be sure, that the bullet which narrowly missed my head in the little dining-room had been a wild shot that carried no evil intent. I dismissed at once the idea that it might have been fired from the lake. It had crashed through the glass with too much force to have come so far. 
and, moreover, I could hardly imagine even a rifle-ball's finding an unimpeded right-of-way through so dense a strip of wood. I found it difficult to get rid of the idea that someone had taken a pot-shot at me. The woman's mocking voice from the lake added to my perplexity. It was not, I reflected, such a voice as one might expect to hear from a country girl, nor could I imagine any errand that would excuse a woman's presence abroad on an October night, whose cool air inspired first confidences with fire and lamp. There was something haunting in that last cry across the water. It kept repeating itself over and over in my ears. It was a voice of quality, of breeding and charm. Good night, merry gentlemen. In Indiana, I reflected, rustics, young or old, men or women, were probably not greatly given to salutations of just this temper. Bates now appeared. "'Beg pardon, sir, but your room's ready whenever you wish to retire.' I looked about in search of a clock. "'There are no timepieces in the house, Mr. Glenarm. Your grandfather was quite opposed to them.' He had a theory, sir, that they were conducive, as he said, to idleness. He considered that a man should work by his conscience, sir, and not by the clock, the one being more exacting than the other. I smiled as I drew out my watch, as much at Bates' solemn tones and grim lean visage as at his quotation from my grandsire. But the fellow puzzled and annoyed me. His unobtrusive black clothes, his smoothly brushed hair, his shaven face, awakened an antagonism in me. "'Bates, if you didn't fire that shot through the window, who did? Will you answer me that?' "'Yes, sir, if I didn't do it. It's quite a large question who did. I'll grant you that, sir.' I stared at him. He met my gaze directly without flinching, nor was there anything insolent in his tone or attitude. He continued— I didn't do it, sir. I was in the pantry when I heard the crash in the refectory window. The bullet came from out of doors, as I should judge, sir. The facts and conclusions were undoubtedly with Bates, and I felt that I had not acquitted myself creditably in my effort to fix the crime on him. My abuse of him had been tactless, to say the least, and I now tried another line of attack. Of course, Bates, I was merely joking. What's your own theory of the matter? I have no theory, sir. Mr. Glenarm always warned me against theories. He said, if you will pardon me, there was great danger in the speculative mind. The man spoke with a slight Irish accent, which in itself puzzled me. I've always been attentive to the peculiarities of speech, and his was not the brogue of the Irish servant class— Larry Donovan, who was English-born, used on occasions an exaggerated Irish dialect that was wholly different from the smooth, liquid tones of Bates. But more things than his speech were to puzzle me in this man. "'The person in the canoe, how do you account for her?' I asked. "'I haven't accounted for her, sir. There's no women on these grounds, or any sort of person except ourselves.' "'But there are neighbors, farmers, people of some kind must live along the lake.' "'A few, sir, and then there's the school, quite a bit beyond your own west wall.' His slight reference to my proprietorship, my own wall, as he put it, pleased me. "'Oh, yes, there is a school. Girls, yes. Mr. Pickering mentioned it, but the girls hardly paddled on the lake at night. At this season, hunting ducks, should you say, Bates?' 
"'I don't believe they do any shooting, Mr. Glenarm. "'It's a pretty strict school, I judge, sir, from all accounts. "'And the teachers, they're all women?' "'They're the sisters of St. Agatha, I believe they call them. "'I sometimes see them walking abroad. "'They're very quiet neighbours, and they go away in the summer usually, "'except Sister Teresa. "'The school's her regular home, sir, "'and there's the little chapel quite near the wall. "'The young minister lives there, "'and the gardener's the only other man on the grounds.' So my immediate neighbors were Protestant nuns and schoolgirls, with a chaplain and a gardener thrown in for variety. Still, the chaplain might be a social resource. There was nothing in the terms of my grandfather's will to prevent my cultivating the acquaintance of a clergyman. It even occurred to me that this might be a part of the game. My soul was to be watched over by a rural priest, while there being nothing else to do, I was to give my attention to the study of architecture. Bates, my garden housekeeper, was brushing the hearth with deliberate care. "'Show me my cell,' I said, rising, "'and I'll go to bed.' He brought me from somewhere a great brass candelabrum that held a dozen lights, and explained, "'This was Mr. Glenarm's habit. He always used this one to go to bed with. I'm sure he'd wish you to have it, sir.' I thought I detected something like a quaver in the man's voice. My grandfather's memory was dear to him. I reflected, and I was moved to compassion for him. "'How long were you with Mr. Glenarm, Bates?' I inquired as I followed him into the hall. Five years, sir. He employed me the year you went abroad. I remember very well his speaking of it. He greatly admired you, sir.' He led the way, holding the cluster of lights high for my guidance up the broad stairway. The hall above shared the generous lines of the whole house, but the walls were white and hard to the eye. Rough planks had been laid down for a floor, and beyond the light of the candles lay a dark region that gave out ghostly echoes as the loose boards rattled under our feet. "'I hope you'll not be too much disappointed, sir,' said Bates, pausing a moment before opening a door. "'It's all quite unfinished, but comfortable, I should say, quite comfortable.' "'Open the door.' He was not my host, and I did not relish his apology. I walked past him into a small sitting-room that was, in a way, a miniature of the great library below. Open shelves filled with books lined the apartment to the ceiling on every hand, save where a small fireplace, a cabinet, and table were built into the walls. In the centre of the room was a long table with writing materials set in nice order. I opened a handsome case, and found that it contained a set of draftsmen's instruments. I groaned aloud. Mr. Glenarm preferred this room for working. The tools were his very own, sir. The devil they were! I exclaimed irascibly. I snatched a book from the nearest shelf and threw it open on the table. It was The Tower, its early use for purposes of defence. London, 1816. I closed it with a slam. The sleeping room is beyond, sir. I hope— Don't you hope any more, I growled and it doesn't make any difference whether I'm disappointed or not. Certainly not, sir, he replied in a tone that made me ashamed of myself. The adjoining bedroom was small and meagerly furnished. The walls were untinted and were relieved only by prints of English cathedrals, French chateaux, and like suggestions of the best things known to architecture. The bed was the commonest iron type, and the other articles of furniture were chosen with a strict regard for utility, 
My trunks and bags had been carried in, and Bates asked from the door for my commands. "'Mr. Glenarm always breakfasted at seven-thirty, sir, as near as he could hit it without a timepiece, and he was quite punctual. His ways were a little odd, sir. He used to prowl about at night a good deal, and there was no following him.' "'I fancy I shan't do much prowling,' I declared. "'And my grandfather's breakfast hour will suit me exactly, Bates.' "'If there's nothing further, sir, that's all. "'And Bates?' "'Yes, Mr. Glenarm.' "'Of course you understand that I didn't really mean to imply "'that you had fired that shot at me.' "'I beg you not to mention it, Mr. Glenarm.' "'But it was a little queer. "'If you should gain any light on the subject, let me know.' "'Certainly, sir.' "'But I believe, Bates, that we'd better keep the shades down at night. "'These duck-hunters hereabouts are apparently reckless, "'and you might attend to these now, and every evening hereafter.' "'I wound my watch as he obeyed. "'I admit that in my heart I still half-suspected the fellow of complicity "'with the person who had fired at me through the dining-room window. "'It was rather odd, I reflected, that the shades should have been open.' though I might account for this by the fact that this curious unfinished establishment was not subject to the usual laws of governing orderly housekeeping. Bates was evidently aware of my suspicions, and he remarked, drawing down the last of the plain green shades, "'Mr. Glenarm never drew them, sir. It was a saying of his, if I may repeat his words, that he liked the open.' These are eastern windows, and he took a quiet pleasure in letting the light waken him. It was one of his oddities, sir. To be sure, that's all, Bates. He gravely bade me good-night, and I followed him to the outer door and watched his departing figure, lighted by a single candle that he had produced from his pocket. I stood for several minutes listening to his step, tracing it through the hall below, as far as my knowledge of the house would permit. Then, in unknown regions, I could hear the closing of doors and drawing of bolts. Verily, my jailer was a person of painstaking habits. I opened my travelling case and distributed its contents on the dressing-table. I had carried through all my adventures a folding leather photograph-holder containing portraits of my father and mother, and of John Marshall Glenarm, my grandfather, and this I set up on the mantel in the little sitting-room. I felt to-night as never before how alone I was in the world." and a need for companionship and sympathy stirred in me. It was with a new and curious interest that I peered into my grandfather's shrewd old eyes. He used to come and go fitfully at my father's house, but my father had displeased him in various ways that I need not recite, and my father's death had left me with an estrangement which I had widened by my own acts. Now that I had reached Glenarm, my mind reverted to Pickering's estimate of the value of my grandfather's estate. Although John Marshall Glenarm was an eccentric man, he had been able to accumulate a large fortune, and yet I had allowed the executor to tell me that he had died comparatively poor. In so readily accepting the terms of the will and burying myself in a region of which I knew nothing, I had cut myself off from the usual channels of counsel. If I left the place to return to New York, I should simply disinherit myself. At Glenarm I was, and there I must remain to the end of the year." I grew bitter against Pickering as I reflected upon the ease with which he had got rid of me. I had always satisfied myself that my wits were as keen as his, but I wondered now whether I had not stupidly put myself in his power. End of chapter 4